Hello, everyone. Here at the Decision Lab, it is our mission to democratize access to behavioral science insights through research, analysis, and application. Since launching in 2014, we've become one of the leaders in this space and have worked with organizations such as the World Bank, the Skoll Foundation, and some of the largest financial institutions in Canada and the United States. My name is Jacob Rusinek. I'm a senior consultant at the Decision Lab, and I will be your host today. Prior to working at the Decision Lab, I've been part of a team that spearheaded early efforts to establish a behavioral science unit at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. It is during this period when I had the opportunity to work with today's guest, Ting Jiang. As our listeners know, applied behavioral science has been growing intensely in the last 10 to 15 years. What was once a field at the fringe of social science and public policy has inspired the startup of hundreds of nudge units around the world. Much of that growth started with groundbreaking research coming from Professor Dan Ariely and his team of fabulous researchers at the Center for Advanced Hindsight, an initially small team of social scientists and economists that quickly grew into one of the most established think tanks in the field. Today, we have the honor and privilege of interviewing Dr. Ting Jiang, who is a principal for global health and development at the Center for Advanced Hindsight. We want to speak with Ting about the newest trends in behavioral science and where she believes the field will take us in the coming years. Ting is a principal of global health and development at Dan Ariely's Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. An experimental economist by training, she has published in a wide range of disciplines related to behavioral change, social norms, and unethical behavior with lab and field experiments conducted in different countries. She has also consulted for a group of organizations, including the World Bank, the Gates Foundation, and the Department for International Development of the UK government. For the past few years, a substantial portion of her time has been dedicated to product design and tests on behavioral change applications, as well as conducting field studies and designing product solutions to help low-income Kenyans improve their financial and health decisions. Thank you so much for joining us, Ting. It is great to have you today. We would like to speak with you about the newest innovations in behavioral science and what trends you foresee in the coming future. But before jumping into that, I think a lot of people would love to first understand how you came to work on behavioral science. The Center for Advanced Hindsights is arguably the think tank for applied behavioral science. Started by famous and groundbreaking professor and behavioral economist Dan Ariely, the initially small lab housed at Duke University has evolved into a strong team of over 100 behavioral researchers, as well as thousands of avid followers. You are one of the most senior people at the lab and have worked closely with Professor Ariely for a while. Can you tell our listeners what motivated you to get into behavioral science and how you went about it? Thank you, Jakob. So I came to work on behavioral science because of Dan. Uh, I met Dan when I was doing my PhD in economics in the Netherlands. And um not sure what kind of good deeds I did in my past life. I was given a full hour meeting Dan in my office. And I was very thrilled to show him a game that I created to capture cheating. So I don't know if we have time, if I could share how this game works, because it can help you understand the rest of the story. Absolutely. Please go ahead, Tig. Okay. So, Jakob, imagine that we have this six-sided dice. Uh, when it lands, it has a top and bottom side. So usually the number of dots on the top side counts as the dice outcome. But in this particular game, you have to choose which side of the dice outcome would count as your earning. So either the top or the bottom side. And you choose it in your mind before I roll the dice. After the dice roll, 
you can see you know how many dots are on the top side and then you tell me which side uh, counts and now the rule of the game is that if the side that you chose has more than three dots let's say that you will be invited to write the book with Dan next year also know that any two sides of a six-sided dice add up to seven so six and one five and two four and three so you always have a side that has numbers bigger than three and the other less or equal to three or seven minus the number so if you see the dice outcome on the top side is one you know that the other side is seven minus one is six for the bottom side so if the top side is two the bottom side is five if the top side is three the other side is four and vice versa so well, as you see the the beauty of this game is that you know uh, you you don't you only need a dice and people can lie at ease in front of you without leaving any trace of evidence. Of course, here you didn't lie, but suppose if you lie, I I wouldn't know, right, whether you lied to me or not. So Dan was very impressed by the game back then and told me that he forgot his recorder, otherwise he would have done it so with me on his podcast, Arming the Donkeys. So I was really uh, blown away by by that. Um, a giant showing such encouragement towards back then. I was just a graduate student. So not long after, my supervisor actually told me that he met Dan in a conference organized by Uli Ganesi. And Dan had my game on his iPad and he already started collecting cheating data all over the world. So I was again impressed, you know, a professor with the speed of an uh, entrepreneur. And, and lastly, I missed the conference because of a visa problem. And I emailed quite a few people to check out my poster. Uh, and guess what? You know, Dan, Dan was one of them. But he was the only person who sent me a photo of my supervisor, Jan Porter, standing in front of my poster, presenting it on my behalf with a glass of wine. And the email was titled Evidence. So I was really impressed by his extraordinary thoughtfulness. So those impressions actually rest in, you know, in the bottom of my heart for years until some seven, eight years later that he invited me to visit the lab at Durham. Uh, and I couldn't help making an offer to him to work for him. So there I made a shift from experimental economics to behavioral science. And that's how I came to work on behavioral science. Let me just go back for a second to the game. So I understand that the whole point of the game is to kind of show most of us are inclined uh, to, I guess, lie or cheat when the opportunity arises. Can you explain the purpose of the game a little bit more? I'm very curious about that. We don't like to cheat uh, when other people know we're cheating. So... This game creates an opportunity for you to lie without the other person knowing that that you are lying, first of all. But still, if if I ask you to play this game for, let's say, 15 times, I can actually infer statistically whether it's likely or not that you have been lying just because, you know, you can't be guessing the right side all of the time. And the other is, yes, we are tempted to cheat a lot of the times. And, and depending on the context, we might feel good or bad about our cheating, but in this particular game, we, we, for example, found so both two opposite sides of the dice always add up to seven. So one versus six, two versus five, three versus four. And guess if I would pay you according to the dice outcome, you know, if it's six, I pay you six euros. If one, I pay you one euros or, or dollars. You could, when, when it is one and six, if you, you, if you got the unlucky side when you lie, you got five euros more. But if it's three versus four, you got only, you know, improvement of one uh, and two and five improvement of, of uh, $3. So the question is, under which uh, numbers do people actually lie the most? Is it the one where, you know, one versus six, where you get the most gains by lying? Or three, or four, three to four, the least or the middle? Do you have a guess? 
Well, I'm assuming it's it's probably where they can get the most out of it. So no, so it turns out to be two two to five. So people actually feel bad with one to six. It might be too obvious. Like okay, right? It's it's like by the gain of five, and maybe because people would expect them to cheat there, they want to actually show honesty. But when it is three and four, maybe it's just too little gain to be worth it. The moral cost. So it turns out that we find a pattern of peaking at、uh, two and five. Great.、Uh, so Ting, I'm going to move on to our next question, which is:、um, We would like to find out what are some of the more exciting projects that you currently work on. Can you walk our listeners through some of them? Sure. So as the global arm of our center, we started in Africa three years ago to promote saving for health、uh, with some very generous sponsorship from Yablanga Institute, whose mission is to promote a digital agenda for innovation in global health. And JI feels that game-changing innovations are needed to really make an impact and puts a lot of faith in the discipline of behavioral science in our team. So we have designed and tested dozens of interventions in the past few years, and getting close to, I would say, a more holistic intervention program to. Effective behavioral change of the poor, but I must say that a lot of the messaging tests that we did、uh, was counterintuitive、uh, in in the results. Was just results that we didn't expect. But I was really excited when we had a few interventions of achieving the effect size of doubling savings、uh, with quite long-lasting effects. Maybe let me give one example, which was a calendar that we gave away to people to low-income savers, and we had used the Control calendar, which was what the Pharmaxis Foundation originally used as a giveaway with brand images, but we also, for some, change or replace the brand images with inspiring, norm-changing stories on it. Through some qualitative findings, we found that、uh, men typically don't perceive themselves as savers;、uh, women did. But in this story, we had. Joseph, who is a guy living in Kibera, who ended up saving, and when the daughter Olivia was sick, they were able to take the daughter to the clinic. And the doctor said to Joseph, "Wow, lucky that you are here earlier because it would have cost you more if you delayed the visit." And when they went back home that night, the wife told Joseph that, "I'm so proud of you that you are able to take care of our daughter Olivia." So such a story. Which is, you know, again, we didn't interact with the users more than、um, the control calendar, but it was able to improve savings by a lot. So the control calendar, we we end up finding zero percent of people save in the first three months, but with the calendar, we had close to eight percent who save, and some with multiple times. But then with some other calendars, we had, you know. Ask them to plan their saving dates on the calendar.、Uh, we ask them to set a goal, a very simple goal setting and tracking features, and all of these have shown quite substantial effects,、uh, which meant that you know the intention to save was probably there, but that people were bad at following through their intention. And and with the calendar, which is hanging on in their home environment every day, reminding them not just you know the fact that they want to save, but also you know how exactly, when exactly, and what's The tangible consequence that could come out of it, or that other people are also saving. In this case,、uh, Joseph, then they might overinterpret. You know how many Josephs there are in their community. We were able to promote saving, so that that was、uh, quite an exciting result for us. And the other exciting project is is Umbrella, which is a new charitable giving startup to match donors and recipients, which we also call Uber for healthcare. 
And the key feature for Umbrella is that it's going to be a graduation model where uh, the donors are going to chip in less and less over time, co-funding for their health insurance, which is only $60 a year. So they started with, you know, the Kenyan recipient you know, saving for only $1 a month and $4 coming from the donors. But over uh, six years, we're going to phase this out in terms of donors' contribution and the recipient will save more and more. And how do we get them to save more and more? It's through some of these behavioral interventions that we'll do for them. And one of them being a financial decision board game where they experience health shocks. They learn how to cut down unnecessary expenses, save more for healthcare through experiential learning and more emotion-based learnings as well as concrete behavioral habits that they want to acquire moving beyond the game. And let me say maybe one more project where we're doing in Europe with an insurance company to promote healthy living. So getting people to exercise more, healthy diet, and working with their talented app development team, Actify, we have, for instance, launched a new concept called Hidden Gym, where users are given inspirations to take steps in unexpected cases, like walking stairs for multiple times a day instead of really going to the gym. So we found out that one of the core barriers for not exercising enough is that people typically don't have enough time. And hidden gyms are easy to do without spending more time, but they're also more enjoyable. And before you know it, you actually have done your exercise amount for your day. So this is something quite exciting for us because we have found preliminary evidence on how how more engaging it is. And for the coming year, uh, the team will be focusing on also healthy living interventions in the workplace. And there I'm particularly excited about behavioral change interventions around resting, which is less obvious than exercise and diet, such as 20 minutes midday napping or meditation. Why napping? First, health benefits on heart, health, uh, and and also mood. Second, while most people have the intention to exercise more and eat better, uh, fewer actually want to nap because they associate napping with the elderly and the children and the weak. So the room for change is even bigger. And our, our Zilvercal's partner team actually has a cute name for this campaign called Nappiness. So to increase happiness and health via uh, nappiness, also uh, quite exciting in 2019. Such powerful examples. Thank you so much for, for sharing those things. I could listen to uh, those all day long. I'm sure you have plenty, plenty more. Uh, so I wish we had all day for this, and I'm sure our listeners would also be curious. No, but this is great to hear. It's great to hear how you guys are really on the cutting edge of applying these insights from behavioral, uh, from behavioral science into really doing a lot of, of good around the world. So, so I can only applaud that. But I'd like to go back now for a second to your own journey into behavioral uh, science and ask you, what were some of the largest challenges you encountered throughout this journey and how did you go about solving those? I think the biggest challenge I've encountered is the human tendency to believe in intuitions rather than evidence, which is related to our own biases of overconfidence and confirmation bias. And I had to deal with this challenge not only when I communicate and work with our partners, but also among our internal team and even myself. Believing in data uh, or evidence rather than intuitions is counterintuitive by definition and very difficult to do because our thinking habits oftentimes are, you know, very automatic. And judging by evidence is something 
it's not something that we do in, instinctively and require more deliberative efforts. And so when we are going on our, you know, cruising mode of thinking really fast, we tend not to believe in the evidence. So having those moments where we pause and say, what is really the evidence? And once we have the evidence, really digest the evidence and say, okay, it's time we change our prior and not like poking the data until you get, you know, something confirming your, your prior uh, or your intuitions. It's something that I found most challenging. And how did we solve it? Uh, for the partnership with uh, Yublang Institute, we did for a while quarterly guessing game. So our center is called Advanced Hindsight, uh, where we believe that people, you know, can explain a lot in hindsight, but not in foresight. So people have to, uh, in, in employees of our partner companies would, would have to guess study results before we launch the test. So we send a simple Google form and say, okay, we have this A, B, and it's A has this message, B has this message to promote people to, to save. Which one do you think works better? Uh, and then we announce the results after the test is done and we give a prize called the Award of Advanced Foresight. Uh, and that worked really well. We gave people maybe a bottle of alcohol or um, dance irrational car game as a prize. Uh, people who won it really was proud of it. Even maybe sometimes they just, you know, made a more random guess. But the, the exercise really um made our team as well as uh, our partner employees uh, realize how how difficult it is to predict actually before the evidence is there and that our intuitions can really go wrong. Um, so if we can truly take the tool of evidence-based approach and experimentation seriously, I think there's so much progress we can make in product design, in programs, but it's not yet so natural in our system. And it's, you know, both in our thinking system and the operational system in companies. So that's uh, something to be improved on. Interesting thing. So let me follow up on that point because I'm myself very curious and, and, and I'm sure other people out there as well is other um, moments in life or situations where you would say that, uh, that thinking one, as, as Dan Kahneman coined it, that automatic thinking, intuitive thinking is more appropriate and should be followed than the deliberate thinking two um, system. So brushing teeth is appropriate if we just apply system one because we do it every day we don't need to think <laughs> more about you know how better <laughs> to brush our teeth and i do think that there's a lot of good habits that are in the interest of our health our happiness that we haven't acquired and we haven't tried uh, we were just stuck with those habits that you know since our childhood and while our context has changed you know mobile phone is there we haven't actually acquired habits to best cope with uh, these new technologies. And for those, I don't think it makes sense to sort of make a new decision every day, like to brush your teeth or not to brush your teeth or, you know, before bed, you know, to use your phone or not to use your phone. I would rather use a habit and a rule of thumb and say, okay, I'm going to stick to that. It's better for me not to use my phone one hour before sleep time and I'm going to have a habit of putting the phone in the living room one hour before. Because this topic in itself is so interesting before we move on. What about um, more difficult life decisions like, I don't know, picking your right uh, life partner, like your right mate, for example. I mean, there are people who um, I think go at it in a very analytical way and look at does this person meet kind of like the criteria that one sets for oneself. And then there are these people who kind of, you know, as we say, blindly fall in love, which 
I understand is more mm-hmm. related to that uh, kind of intuitive thinking about somebody. Yet the consequence of that decision can be potentially, you know, quite large because ideally you want to, I mean, mm-hmm. many want to find the right partner for a lifetime. So when we get, when we move on from habits and still look at more larger life decisions, I still, I'm still curious what your research shows where it's, you know, in most of these types of decisions, it's, uh, you know, better to follow the kind of more reflective, deliberate approach or other moments in life where you say that the automatic intuitive uh, system is still uh, appropriate to be used. I think in terms of mating or picking your life partners, I would say both are needed. Uh, you know, we are naturally charmed by people who play good music and who can do sports. Well, for different people, of course, different tastes in this, but these are things that we'll anyway enjoy for the rest of our life. It's not that we made a decision based on how much we enjoy, let's say, uh, their singing. And then after marriage, we simply cannot stand their singing anymore, right? So those things are probably decision based on intuitive thinking and those benefits actually carry on. However, there are aspects where you do want to deliberate over and maybe mating is a more difficult example to think about. Yeah, what aspects do you want to uh, over deliberate on? But if we think about, say, education choice, what what major do you want to study? And uh, again, there, you know, you, you do think about what you naturally love and follow your passion. But however, you know, the choice of university and where um, and, and for how long and how much uh, debt, financial loan do you want to take? There are major decisions that you do have to analyze, collect information uh, related to each aspect and analyze systematically. And sometimes I do think we have to overcome some intuitive uh, responses uh, intentionally when, when, when we know that they are biasing us in a certain way. So if somebody looks really handsome, you know that you are naturally inclined to like them but that doesn't mean that you know that you it would be a good fit for a lot of you know habits that you you know that you're gonna be happy together for spending time together so so you might actually want to discount look of someone knowing that you have a tendency of uh, overvaluing it thanks thanks for that so let, let's uh, let's shift gears now and I'd like to ask you um, about the application of behavioral science in projects so the Center for Advanced Hindsight has a strong reputation because it applies rigorous academic approach uh, to policy projects. This is obviously something that can be very beneficial for organizations that request your services, but it also comes with a lot of challenges. So at times we hear that behavioral science is embraced by project leaders because because it provides fresh, new, and sometimes quicker perspective than uh, maybe some of the classic economic models have done in the past. But we also hear that units do not have the needed luxury of uh, of time and budgets to conduct complex randomized control trials, yet they still want to apply behavioral science to their projects. So what do you think are the biggest challenges for an organization looking to apply behavioral science in an empirical manner? I think the there are two assumptions you made in your question. So I think one is that experiments are costly in money and effort or time. Uh, second, people chose not to apply behavioral science because they cannot afford, say, money or the time needed for for ICT. And I actually want to be devil's advocate here and wonder if they are true. So one possible explanation of resistance to change of applying new tools like behavioral science is that people are afraid of being responsible 
for adopting new ways of working that lead to something worse than if they would have done it with their usual routines, right? So making mistakes by trying something that's not part of their usual routines tend to get blames from either your boss or, you know, other people uh, in your team. So this is, this is something I felt more challenging than, you know, the technicality of RCTs. And, and by the way, a lot of RCTs don't take as much time if we compare sort of, if we, if we look at the benefit cost analysis of how much benefits it brought for their project and compared to other interventions they would have done that wouldn't result in as big, good uh, changes. So I think it a, a lot is actually the psychological barrier. And how can they be addressed such barriers? I would say the leadership team of an organization can do a lot about this. So one is to create a culture that embraces risk-taking and rewards the process of innovation, and maybe even for those who try new ways or, or, or you know, conduct a, a test but didn't succeed in finding a good intervention right away, uh, not only they shouldn't get blamed, but they should get comfort to have generated learnings from those failures and, and try again. So I think the acceptance from leadership level uh, would be crucial for overcoming this challenge. And secondly, do start from something small, simple and costless because one does need to get familiar with the methodology to invest in something more effortful. So one example is that for the very first test that we conducted with uh, MTBA in, in Kenya, we run a test comparing two SMS that we send to users. One says saving as little as 10 shillings to get 100 uh, shilling so that you get the bonus of 50 shilling. And the other, we didn't say save as little as 10. We just say save, you know, 100 to get the 50 shilling bonus. And very simple. And again, you know, we ask people, do they make a difference? Which one did that's better? And people either think that it doesn't make any difference or they think the effect size is very small. But it turns out that it was huge. It was really big impact because a lot of people of the low income don't have a, uh, more than, you know, 20, 30 shilling in their M-Pesa. And whenever they receive this SMS and look at their balance, you know, if it's very little, they, they feel like they can do it. If it's, you know, save 100, which is a higher anchor, again, it's a bigger step, uh, more friction, and, and they they then uh, think that they will do it later and end up not doing it. So getting these sweet uh, rewards from something very simple, very costless, I would encourage one to then uh, try more because early failure can be very deterrent psychologically. So that would help. Uh, and the last thing is to create a culture in understanding how often, again, our intuitions can go wrong and uh, really showing that, not just like telling them that, hey, your intuitions go wrong, right? So when we mentioned this game where people and even including the leadership, everybody kind of uh, joins uh, the game and they all thought that they would have probably made a, a correct prediction and learned it themselves through this fun way that they, they could be wrong and they are confronted with their false intuitions. Um, or they're proud of themselves when they get it right and aspire to become a behavioral scientist. That's the moment when the change really starts to take place and not just uh, with a few individuals, but it creates a culture of 
experimentation. Thank you for that thing. That makes a lot of sense. So it goes a bit back to what we just talked about, the intuition versus deliberate. So how the biases can lead us astray sometimes and how it is always worth to kind of question these assumptions by doing some more deliberate data gathering and, and experimentation and, and how often we can then be in a way surprised that whatever our assumptions were actually didn't turn out to be reality. And that can have a huge impact in terms of, as you said, cost benefit. Hence, it's, it's worth to take the effort to invest in uh, maybe a bit of a longer process up front, but that can lead to much larger results down the line. So that's a great takeaway. Thing, I would like to now go into what I think is a very important topic for the whole application in the field of behavioral science, which which is ethics. So as a nonprofit mm -hmm. um, at the Decision Lab, we are particularly interested in the ethical dimension of nudging. And one compelling argument we've heard for why nudging is ethical or can be ethical is that choice architecture happens all the time, whether we think about it or not. Therefore, there's an ethical imperative to think more deeply and deliberately about how we're doing it. So this is a very interesting view, but it brings up further ethical questions. So if nudging gives you a tool to be more deliberate and empirical in the way you affect people's decisions, how can we make sure that we do this in a way that is as aligned with people's interests as possible? Is the answer to create discourse mm -hmm. and let people decide where to be nudged? Or should we decide for them based on societal ideals, such as being healthy and prepared for retirement? I actually think your previous question on distinguishing system two versus system one decisions would make sense here. So take brushing teeth again as an example and say, Jakob, you were a very naughty kid uh, when you were small and you really didn't like brushing teeth. So your parents talked to a behavioral scientist and uh, came up with a, a solution, which is they bought different colored toothbrushes and every day they played a game with you on which color did you like to use today? You ended up brushing teeth happily uh, forever after. Would you actually mind that your parents leverage on the psychology or perceive autonomy in nudging you to brush your teeth? Probably not. But if they use a similar trick to get you to, let's say, change your choice of major from carpentry to economics, and you really didn't like economics, and, and they nudge you into that, and which is a major decision where you could have reflected on it yourself and have your unique preferences, I do think that that's more problematic. So for daily habits in the interest of health, happiness, Let's say that they tend to be system one. We can use nudge, uh, but for decisions that are related to unique preferences, identity, infrequent and key decisions in one's life, maybe we still use nudge, but the right type of paternalism is not to nudge them, not to think about them or in the choice architecture without their own awareness, but actually nudging them to deliberate on them as much and as long as needed so that we save time from decisions that are more trivial, habitual, where our intentions are aligned with the nudge, but that we, we don't do those for very key, infrequent, deliberative decisions. And I would even speculate that in 10 years, we will all become philosophers or would finally have time to reflect on meaning of life because of all the true decisions, not only tackled more effectively by our nudges, but taken out of our choice set to liberate us to think for ourselves in those key decisions. And then we would behave more and more in line with our true identity and unique preferences if we apply paternalism in the right way. And as you said, you know, it's, it's key to think about how do we identify decisions where we should nudge and in what way do we nudge. And I find the Kahneman's model of system one, system two actually very helpful in thinking about this. 
question. Moving on, I, I'd like to now speak a bit uh, about uh, the whole topic of research and behavioral science uh, with you. So you belong to the group of groundbreaking researchers in the topic of uh, applied behavioral science. Can you share with our listeners how you typically choose themes you are interested in researching about, how you link these to behavioral science, and what tools you use for your research? Also, what to you distinguishes good research from bad research in behavioral science? And finally, what, I guess, tricks, for the lack of a better word, do you use to translate, uh, you know, complex academic knowledge to applied work without losing any of its depth and rigor? First question, how, how do we typically choose themes? Our lab's number one mission is to make impact in helping people become healthier, wealthier, and happier. And as Dan puts it, we want to reduce human waste in the domain of health, money, time, love, environment. So we, we pick partners who have overlapping missions with us. And of course, it's fine for us if their goals are also in their business and operational interests. It's important that we maximize impacts that we can do in these themes. And as long as the themes fit into our missions, your question about how do we link behavioral science and what tools we use for our research. So I, I would say three things in terms of our processes. One is that we are collaborative. We, we collaborate with the practitioners to better identify the problems, the behavioral problems in the work. And this is very important for us. And typically we start with the process called uh, behavioral mapping or diagnosis. And the reason why I think, you know, inspired by Einstein's quote that if I would have one hour to solve problem, I would spend 55 minutes trying to figure out what the problem really is and five minutes to come up with a solution is that oftentimes when we don't truly understand what is really the barrier and validated by evidence, we can be intuitively drawn to a solution where we find interesting instead of really addressing the problem and looking at things on the surface instead of truly know what's the problem. And, you know, figuring that out takes time and often people are very impatient about it, but that's something that we do differently is that we spend a tremendous amount of time understanding the context, understanding the behavioral problem, uh, understanding whether this is, you know, whether people don't do it because they lack the intention to do it, or is it because they have intention behavior gap, uh, they forgot to, they lack self-control, or maybe it was not their own uh, lack of intention, but that, you know, there is lack of supportive social norms, uh, they don't get respect if they actually uh, do the right behavior. So understanding the, the where, where to intervene on is as important, and if not the most important piece. And then, you know, we try to pre-test and tweak solutions with convenient sample at smaller scale before scaling up. And this is our principle of cost effectiveness. Also, because we don't, again, uh, rely on our own intuitions of the effect of uh, the effectiveness of the solutions that we propose. So we only um, scale up those that we have evidence on its effectiveness. And we are scientific in a way of creating program product solutions, building on also multidisciplinary scientific insights, but also optimizing these solutions via uh, iterative experimentations. So I would say that's the tools that we use um, and the processes. For your question of distinguishing good research from bad research, I would say there's thousands of A-B tests now being run in the name of behavioral science. But oftentimes the lesson from some of these tests are not generalizable for a broader or different context. And 
typically because the test fails to reveal the mechanism that drives the effect. So it cannot be abstracted to an insight that can be applied to other contexts. I would say good research is research that would allow you to understand the mechanism of what drives the effect. So if you know A works better than B, you don't just know it because it works, but also because it's through addressing, say, self-control with reward substitution or increasing intention via highlighting supportive norms. And in those cases, you can generalize this to any context that actually similar to this, knowing better the mechanism. And also the faster, the better you can improve as you will reduce the number of iterations and have clearer directions on what to iterate on. Your center was um, actually key in helping the World Bank and other entities to establish their own behavior science unit, often referred to as nudge units. Today, to a large degree, thanks to your efforts, most governments, um, or also thanks to your efforts, most governments employ at least one or two behavioral scientists. So nudging or applied behavioral economics seem to be best suited for affecting public policy. However, after observing the success of nudge units across governments, an increasing number of private sector companies have also followed suit with their own nudge units. So what is your take on the private sector's increased appetite for applying behavioral science in their businesses, also given the ethical conversation we had earlier? I think money and profit certainly speaks louder than anything in a private sector. The the fact that uh, there is good evidence that uh, applying behavioral science is really um, effective in improving performance of product design programs uh, is, I think, what drove um, the appetite uh, increase. Given the ethical question we had earlier, I I do feel sympathetic towards consumers being nudged, sometimes in the wrong way. I think we need to create more uh, awareness of how businesses that are trying to create products in the interest of consumers are the ones that probably in the future will survive the longest because we are having the counter forces of, you know, nudging consumers to resist temptations from the bad nudges. It's not a competition at, at this point yet, but I think soon enough, uh, um, if we uh, apply in the public policy long enough and and substantial enough, uh, we will get to the point that consumers are uh, going to support businesses that with uh, more aligned interests than not. So I think for smart businesses who want to succeed in the long run, it, it would be wise to shift gears in, in profit-driven only to also taking into account consumers' well-being, happiness, and health in the calculation. Right. And I think you wanted to talk to us a little bit about the con this new concept of behavioral tech that a lot of people are interested about. Is there, are there some thoughts you want to share with us on that topic? Oh, yes. This is something more related to how to create new products and maybe startup endeavors. Like the concept of fintech, which refers to new technologies that seek to improve and automate financial services, behavioral tech, on the other hand, refers to new technologies that improves and automates human participation or behavioral uptake in products, services, and programs, such as new tech that would improve behavioral adherence to medications, diet, lifestyle changes in health. And I think 
systematic application of behavioral tech could be the next breakthrough of innovation, not just in healthcare or sort of public sectors, but also in what kind of products that we would create, invent for consumers. So one example is Shapa, a product created by Dan to help people to lose weight. And there, yes, we, we have an existing product, uh, which is like, you know, a weighing machine. However, applying insights of behavioral science, then when further in tweaking the product so that one, like people don't get to see how much exactly they weigh, they, they see color scale instead. And because human weight actually fluctuates quite a lot during the day and not really linked to the behavior that we have been doing. So it's oftentimes a bad feedback if we see the weight and we have done, let's say, good behavior, but then the weight goes out just because we drank, you know, a glass of water. So there's a good reason to tweak the product that it would end up helping consumers in stepping up uh, or stepping on the scale every day uh, and try to lose weight, adhere to that journey. The other thing is I can ask you, about a career in behavioral science, because that's important to a lot of people. Where there's people, um, there's business. And, and we want to reflect on how the business uh, world can help contribute to human well-being by creating products that's really in the interest of better healthy behavior and ha healthy habits. So as you know, chronic disease are some of the biggest burdens to individual but also to governmental budgets. And there's very strong intention of individuals to improve on health. The cumulative cost of chronic disease in middle low income countries is expected to increase to 11.2 trillion by 2030. So I think we need to empower citizens to take on behavioral change to contribute uh, to welfare. And I dare to say that, you know, the country who figured out to push a growth momentum on citizens' health and well-being, not just money or GDP, is going to be the leader of the world of 21st century. And there's lots of business opportunities for the private sector in that trend. Applied behavioral science is becoming an increasingly appealing career choice for many, especially those who want to sit at the intersection between various fields as well as between theory and application. However, for that very reason, it is a tough field to prepare well for. Many of our uh, listeners and readers have asked us how they can best prepare for this field. With this in mind, what skills do you think an applied behavioral scientist will most likely need in, a, say, in the next five to 10 years? How can they best prepare? And how would you distinguish between a behavioral scientist who wants to be more of a researcher versus someone who wants to do actually applied work? Because behavioral science is essentially about understanding human behavior, I think is crucial for having good psychological knowledge. And because it's based on experimentation, evidence-based, a good statistical understanding and the skills of doing statistical tests. As for what distinguishes a researcher and applied researcher, I would say that applied researcher needs to be more interdisciplinary. So a lot of the interventions that we do are multidisciplinary because of the problems that we tackle. And if you are just a researcher, I, I would say probably a bit more Focus and lab experiments are oftentimes uh, more clean and the journey is different in terms of how much applied thinking that we can we can do. As we're coming towards the end of this chat, we would like to ask what short to long term future you envisioned for the Center of Advanced Hindsight and what types of project your team is most excited about in the coming years? We are actually very excited about exploring the space of choice architecture in a literal sense, to redesign space at home, at work, in a public space, to see 
how we can embed choice architecture, behavioral science interventions in people's environment to help them make healthier and happier decisions. So not only that people should be not to exercise more, eat better, but also for social interactions, it tends to be important what our environmental cues are for facilitating meaningful interactions. Thank you so much for all your insights today, Ting. We would like to thank you for your time and wish you and the Center for Advanced Hindsight all the best for 2019 and beyond. Thank you so much. Thanks. This was the eighth of a series of podcasts conducted by the Decision Lab with behavioral science experts working across various industries. We hope it provided some fresh and valuable insights to you about the current state of the field and upcoming trends. If you would like to receive our newsletter or simply want to get in touch with us or potentially have interest in being interviewed yourself for a podcast in the series, please visit us at www.thedecisionlab.com.